on the third day of March, 1962. And the principal speaker is Joe Lee from Tyler, Texas. The original record and this copy were both made by Bill Mitchell, 2103 Miller Avenue, Modesto, California. So I'm going to call on our good friend Joe L. from Tyler, Texas, and let's give him a give him a rousing hand. Joe, if you'd like it, if you'd like a drink, Joe, help yourself. Hi, everybody. Hi. Can you hear me? These things are like uh, the old barroom platoon. If you don't get the proper arm on them, you make a hell of a mess. <laughs> I wish that... Uh, Every one of you out there could sit up here where I've been sitting for the last few minutes and look at all these beautiful white eyeballs. <laughs> A whole acre of them. Hell, I thought the world was red till I came in there. My name's Joe, and I am from Texas, be that as it may. Don't laugh at Texas. It has been rumored that you've been reading the wrong history. Uh, the father of our country was born in Texas, George Washington. At a place called Amarillo, and I believe that he inadvertently cut down one of his father's mesquite trees. And he went to his father and he said, Daddy, I cannot tell a lie. I cut down one of your mesquite trees. And his daddy said, Well, I don't mind losing the tree, but if you can't tell a lie, we've got to get out of Texas. yesterday and attended a wonderful meeting last night and after going up there to Modesto I can easily see why we have the biggest AA population in the world out here. It was a great experience. The master of ceremonies, Cliff something or other, was gifted with extrasensory perception. I didn't ever see an AA meeting like that before. He said, uh, said we're going to hear from the fellow with a red necktie on. And two beatniks over in the corner started looking under the beard, and one of them found a red necktie and got up and talked. Uh, uh, Which makes me think of the carny old one about the two beatniks that were walking down the street. These cats and 
One of them fell into an epileptic seizure and was rising on the sidewalk, and the other one looked down at him and said, Go, boy, go. saying that uh, like water wears away a stone, repetition at the expense of boredom will wear away our apathy for self-improvement. And as our chapter 5 says, our stories relate what we were like, uh, what we did, and what we're like now. So I'll tell you a corny old tale about a drinking man. Maybe there'll be one of these guys that can say I drank like he did and I won't have to drink tomorrow. I wasn't just the ordinary alcoholic. My case was different. Uh, I suffered from an affliction that none of you out here have ever heard of, I'm sure. I'm a wino. Now, don't laugh at the wine hole. Uh, wine has some very wonderful medicinal purposes. Uh, it'll cure hay fever. If you drink it like I did, you don't dare sneeze, I'll tell you. It's just... It's just... <laughs> It's a great appetizer. It whetted my appetite for more wine. Uh, but if there's anybody accidentally happens to be suffering from that affliction, don't feel bad about it. Uh, we have a very loyal heritage. Uh, we were born to the purple, you might say. And it's a tremendously old disease, only the recovery is new. Oh, it dates way back, I think, the first case of uh, wineritis, uh, <laughs> alcoholism, was this chap uh, Noah in the Bible, if you remember correctly. He did what God told him to, and uh, uh, after it was all over with, he expected people to react, and they didn't. And he discovered this crushed grape, and know the little preacher's familiar with the story. They found him drunker than a hoot owl. <laughs> and he had a characteristic that has been predominant in alcoholics since that day. He hurt the people who were trying to help him the most. He uh, condemned his own son to perpetual servitude. And uh, another little byproduct of this uh, Wine, uh, none of you have ever suffered from this, I know, and that's hallucination. Uh, incidentally, the first case of hallucinations. I made some research on these things. I wanted to know where I came from. And the first case of DTs I found in the scripture 
uh, way back to a fellow named Belshazzar, I believe he was. He was sort of a high-powered fellow in his right, a king, of course. And uh, as the story goes, uh, he did what I did. He stole this wine out of the temple and set about to have an orgy, whatever that is. Uh, I, I think that's an old way of saying a high old time. But uh, he took his, and they had some more language there, concubines and his wives. He was like some of these AA members, I know. Uh, And he said about to have this thing, and as the story goes, it said that within the hour, quick working line, uh, this hand appeared and was writing on the wall. Well, it jolted this fellow tremendously as his first case of DTs, you know. After you've had him a while, you can sit back and enjoy him. But uh, this hand appeared and it shook him all up, and and he was really perturbed. The, the, The words go like this verbatim that his lines became loose and his knees smoked one upon the other. He had them, didn't he? And so he, he did what a lot of us other drunks did when he found himself in trouble. He called in a psychiatrist. Uh, that's what we'd call him now. I think they call him a soothsayer or an astrologer in those days. But there was a chap floating around the country named Daniel who was just a first-class fellow setting up these dreams. And he called him in, and I guess he knew psychiatrists about as well as he did. He knew it was going to take a lot of money, so he offered him half of his kingdom to interpret this dream. Uh, They've gone up some now, if you go... Chap Daniel, he's just like all psychiatrists. He speaks in a fine spray of generalities, uh, nothing concrete, see, and it takes him about 12 verses to tell this guy, you are coming to no good end. <laughs> well, most of us could have told him that if he kept belting that gallow around. They're <laughs> all through history, if you look for them. I think in the years of the 15th century, Shakespeare's and one of his plays, Hamlet, was it where Hamlet was portraying a crazy man who came up with some beautiful and flowing language, and it went like this. Oh, wine, uh, grant me thy careless laugh, thy mocking jest. Grant me thine intoxicating joy. Grant thine oblivion to my soul. I'm familiar with that oblivion part of it. <laughs> He must have belted it around a little, too, <laughs> But evidently, they died like flies in those days, and they still do. And every time I go into an AA club and see that sign hanging on the wall, but for the grace of God, I know what it means. I started drinking when I was 17 years old. Uh, like most of you, I think, with a group of youngsters, purely to be smart, I didn't want to be not accepted. I remember that group that I drank with that night. I remember it vividly. There were six or seven of us, and 
Some of those fellows are still drinking socially. And I detest that word. I have a very humble opinion about social drinking. Uh, that is that if you take the most pious and unctuous old sister out of the church and put about eight slugs of that gallo in her that I used to drink, she's going to become unsocial as hell. Constituted as I was, I found something in that drink that night that those other 67 fellows didn't find. Oh, I've had psychiatry to tell me all about what I found in that bottle last night, but I'll tell you, I found a lot of hell. And I went back to it again and again and again. And I found myself in Southern California. As an understudy to one of the fashion designers down there, believe it or not, a young man in the garment industry and had a wonderful future. My particular vocation was ladies' lingerie. <laughs> and, uh, well, that's where you cut these soft, silk, uh, sleazy, intimate things that the ladies wear. And I was considered a skilled man in my profession. Uh, we've got a step in AA, I believe it's the second one, that talks about uh, sanity. You know, whether you've got a gopher in the garden or not. Uh, some, of these, some of these geniuses that they come hauling in AA will say, nothing wrong with me, you know, nothing wrong with my head. But let me tell you something. If you cut a bunch of bazaars with three of them places in them, you're nuts. I told a psychiatrist about that, and he said it was just wishful thinking. <laughs> I, uh, needless to say, I cut myself out of that profession. I had too much left over. I well remember. It was the first encounter I came with reality about my drinking. I think it was here that I crossed from this uh, social to pathological drinking, as it has been described so many times. I think it was here that I quit uh, uh, living drink and started drinking to live. But this fellow who had taken me in and, and spent a world of money on my education, a Jewish fellow, one of the grandest guys I've ever met, and he was as compassionate and kind as a non-alcoholic can be, not understanding why we go back to it again and again. And he told me, he said, Joe, uh, I've kept you here with me lots longer than I needed to, and, and, and you're going to have to go. And he said, I'm thankful for one thing, and that is that you weren't a rabbi or you would have destroyed our whole race. (laughs) 
I would like to say here that as a result of being an alcoholic, I am into my fifth profession. I've got a wonderful future behind me. The war was going on at that time. Bless that war. Uh, if you could stand up and breathe and you didn't have any termites in your car, you could go to work anywhere during the war. That was the heyday for the drunk. Anybody could go to work. Uh, revolting thought, but you could. And uh, not having anything to do, I went down to a place, San Pedro, and I bought a plumber's license out the back door of the Union Hall down there, and I didn't know a rubber mallet from a piece of pipe, and I went into the shipyard as a master plumber. <laughs> the fellow who had never picked up anything heavier than a pair of scissors. And I was a master fraud. Those were the days when you were frozen to your job. And I thawed out. <laughs> they said you couldn't quit. I have a little piece of paper at home. I treasure it now. Uh, a little pink slip, and it is signed by the Department of War Labor. And it prohibits me from working within 25 miles of the city of Los Angeles. <laughs> can you get? Huh? <laughs> then became the geography. I think through uh, some quirk of circumstance during the course of our alcoholic progressiveness that every now and then we have to take a look at ourselves. You know, we get sober and uh, have to take a nasty look at ourselves. If we get drunk right quick, we can't stand it. But along here... I had to take a look at myself. We talk about an inventory and AA that we take. And I had a heart-to-heart -heart talk with myself. I said, Joe, you didn't do so good down there, did you? People didn't understand true genius. The world's got it in for you. You kind of tore your gown in Los Angeles, you know. And, and I really did. I, I remember it vividly, this coming to myself. But nothing about the booze I was drinking. It was something else all the time. And I wandered up into Northern California, and of all things, I got a job on the railroad. And that set in a siege of the most hellish existence that I can remember. Sacramento. Nobody here from Sacramento, I hope. And I stayed sober for a few months to show those people what a genius they had hired. And then I did uh, what my wife said, none of you have ever heard this, I got with the boys again. <laughs> Why do they want to always blame our drinking on somebody else? Well, to be very frank with you, the boys didn't want to have nothing to do with me. <laughs> I was an isolated fellow. I drank at the end of the bar. I was exhausted, and this started the physical proportion of alcoholism, 
And I went through these years of, we went through these years of making excuses one for another. Wouldn't our disease be relatively easy to have if we could only affect ourselves? But such is not the case. Uh, uh, alcoholism projects itself, and, and everything that we touch suddenly starts to decay. And don't think my wife wasn't affected by this. I well remember one of the neighbors had the audacity to ask her, why do you live with a man like that? And my wife, with her careful reflex, said, well, you don't know him when he's sober. And this charming woman said, when is he sober? Nobody likes a drunk too well. Did any of you ever have any sister-in-law trouble? Our mother-in-law trouble? Our people trouble? We were living in the house with my sister-in-law. Oh, a beautiful relationship it was. And I'd been in the bar one day the only place that I could get credit. And I'd been asleep all day. This bar had sleeping facilities. It was a good one. And along about four in the afternoon, I, I got up and uh, uh, went home. I reached the point of saturation, and this booze didn't do what it was supposed to do. And I was in a semi-state of being half awake and half asleep. And I go home and lay down on the bed and... Those thoughts I was asleep. And this is the conversation that went on in the next room. My wife hysterically cried out and asked her sister, Oh, what would you do if you were living with a man like that? And her sister didn't hesitate a minute. She said, I would poison the son of a bitch. Let me tell you something. I smelled of the soup around there for a long time. <laughs> they ate first. <laughs> These things go on endlessly in the progression of drinking. I think that once we are compulsed to drink, the arrow always points down. I've never met anybody who's drinking improved. Have you? And as alcohol has been described to me a mental, spiritual, and physical proportion, I think it was the physical end of it that started me in that last uh, deadening landslide. I had, uh, I, uh, I got on wine quite by accident. 
I'm a high-class wino. Fifty-four cents a quart. Uh, most most winos get on it because uh, they don't have the money to buy the other drinks. I still retained the money, but I couldn't retain the alcohol. And I couldn't hold anything else. And I had befriended a little Irish bartender in the lobby of my hotel one day. A little bitty red-headed fellow. His name was O'Farrell, bless his heart. And he had a terrific case of shape. And I was... Uh, Beautifully aglow that morning, uh, feeling benevolent, and I said to him, what's the matter, my friend? And he said, uh, I'm getting ready to get thrown out of the hotel, and I, I've got to shake. It's awful bad. And I don't know what to do about it. I said, well, I can't fix the hotel, but I can fix those shakes. Uh, here's a $5 bill. You go get the feeling better. And that was one of the best investments I've ever made in all my life. I followed that little bartender for four years and drank over $4,000 worth of whiskey off of that $5 loan. And and if he didn't remember it, I reminded him of it. I got him fired from a couple of places, but he was an industrious little rascal. He'd go get him another job. And I was right on his back. Bless his heart, I hope maybe one day he'll find our way of life. But this morning I couldn't retain anything. I couldn't hold any uh, bourbon anymore. I, what is that high-sounding word they use in the hospital? Regurgitate? <laughs> and I went into Curly's place, shaken in every fiber. I had the brown whimpers and... Uh, the flapping woo-hoos, and I said to Curly, I can't take my breakfast this morning. And uh, Curly was swamping out with six o'clock. The bars used to open six. I don't know what they do now. And I never will forget it. Uh, he said, try a drink of that port over there behind the counter. Take a couple of drinks of that, and then you can go back to whiskey. And I would like to say here, my friends, that I have never been back to whiskey. I like what that stuff does to you. It's kind of like a closed umbrella going down, and it opens up all of a sudden. That's it. Mind you, I had heard the word wino many times, and I was a prideful man. I had had a wino thrown out of this bar with which I traded for hustling us on the stool. I said to the bartender, what kind of a place are you running here? Isn't it dignified to let a guy come in and put the lug on you? And four years later, I was thrown out of that same cockeyed place. But I'd heard this word, and I knew that it was bad. I never heard the word alcoholic much, but I'd heard wino. And to keep me from being a wino, after I started drinking wine, I went to the liquor store and bought a bottle of something that had this beautiful wicker around it and poured whatever it was out and poured my wine into that wicker bottle, and I would sip it from that. How phony can you get? And I went on an eight-week binge at the last, going down faster and faster, and... 
saw my first little man. I heard the banjos playing. I'll tell you something about that gallow. You can have them in Technicolor. And I stayed in, I won't call the hotel's name. I was up in this hotel for three or four days with these BTs. The period is very nebulous to me now. And I got up and, and, and made my way home to my wife and literally cried out to her. And I said some words that I had been feigning all my life. I said, I, I, I'm, I'm sick. I'm terribly sick. And this time she bought it. This time she bought it. She knew that something hellish had happened. I never had been sick to, uh, ever, except this earthen sick that you get in the morning. And I thought everybody threw up every morning. I didn't know anything. I used to rent a hotel room with twin beds, one to sleep in, one to throw up in. That's uh, handier that well. And I'm working for the railroad, and they're very narrow-minded people. Uh, they've got a rule about drinking, I think uh, they have. They say that they can fire you, or they did then, if you come out of a place that sold it. I never come out very often, but... Uh, but we were reluctant to call a company physician. And my wife knew that she had to do something, but none other would come, and we were forced to call a railroad physician down to our apartment. And there I lay with all the symptoms of the disease of alcoholism. And this doctor came in, and bless these wives, <laughs> Every time I see one coming to an AA meeting with her husband for a more unselfish reason than we even come ourselves, I feel more grateful to the gals in AA. How they covered us and protected us and, and uh, took part of our burden on their shoulders. God bless all the women in AA. And this doctor comes down to the apartment and looks at the corpse laying over there, and he says to her these words, Does he drink? Uh-uh, she said. And he gave me a pop of the happy medicine in the arm and gave her a prescription for some delightful pills that I later learned to love, phenobarbital. The whole grain thing, they gave her nearly a popcorn sack full of them. And, uh, and then he said to her, these words, this man is sick. Well, he wasn't breaking any news to this boy, I'll tell you. And he said he must be in the hospital for treatment, and uh, they arranged for an ambulance the next morning and loaded me out of my apartment there and, and uh, uh, we went to San Francisco this 90 miles or so with the red light on and the siren screaming and I'm up in the back eating them pills. Of it, 
This a guy been drunk 18 years and in a hurry to do something about it. <laughs> and when I got to the when I got to the hospital, it was a day and a half before I saw a doctor. I guess they were out breaking the laxative habit or something. I didn't see any of them. Testing cigarettes, possibly. And they put me through one of the most uh, stringent clinics, I guess, in existence from the top of my head to the bottom of my shoes. I drank the chalk, walked on my tiptoes, and it's not a lot of fun with the shakes. And the result of this was that I had nothing organically wrong with me. And it seems that a hospital has to have some kind of an answer. They couldn't say, well, he's just here for the vacation, you know, oh, resting. You've got to have something wrong with him. And that was my introduction to psychiatry. Uh, the members of Alcoholics Anonymous of my acquaintance who have had their alcoholism beaten out of them through their knees with a rubber mallet are very few. But they brought this uh, frustrated piano tuner in there. to make friends with me, and I wasn't in the mood to make friends with anybody, and he asked me what I thought were a lot of foolish questions, and I gave him what I thought were a lot of brilliant answers. If he's not a rummy now, it's not my fault. And, and the thing that galled me so bad was that every time he came in to have one of these seances with me, uh, he would bring two interns to take notes. And I always loved an audience. I take credit personally for educating over a hundred doctors. <laughs> now, I know none of you are ever going to drink anymore, and I will divulge a trade secret too. But if you want to set about to drive a psychiatrist insane, or is that gilding the non-existent lily, You let two drunks lay up in bed one night and memorize the same dream to tell him the next morning. Described another delightful little dose that some of our gals in AA are quite fond of, bromide. Uh, he gave me the granddaddy of nerving, the undiluted thing, sodium bromide elixir. Uh, he gave me five shot glasses a day to calm me down. It's clear, it tastes like uh, seawater, has no odor, and the marvelous thing about it is that food doesn't disturb it. And, uh, with my alcoholic reasoning, I thought that if five little shot glasses would calm me down, a jug would be lots better. And I found an unsuspecting intern that would peddle it to me for a bucket jug. Oh, it's a joy on earth. 
I can understand why these Aunt Minnie's sit in the back bedroom and suck on that nervy. And that stuff is a fine ride, I'll tell you. <laughs> but the only thing wrong with it is that it will make you a blubbering idiot. Uh, you talk about living a day at a time on AA. You drink bromide, you only live a few minutes. You don't know what happened a while ago, and you don't care what's going to happen after a while. <laughs> I had been in the hospital over 25 days, and uh, I, they had changed my diagnosis three times. I finally ended up, of all things, as an ambulatory schizophrenic. <laughs> uh, that means a going Jesse with dual wheels. I was, I was ambulatory anyway, and I wasn't when I come into the hospital. I couldn't walk, but against all this stuff I'm drinking, they're fattening me up, and I can get up and move around. And one morning, this skull jockey comes down, and uh, he's going to have another seance with me, and we're walking up the hall, and I staggered into him. And he stopped and rubbed his palms and ticked, and uh, he said, you are staggering. And I fell into the wall, and I said, I bet that's a symptom of something. <laughs> uh, not long after that, the resident physician came into my nervous ward. They didn't have facilities for treating the alcoholic like they now do, God bless it. In the hospitals, it wasn't a recognizable disease like they do now. And I was in the nervous ward. And this fellow came in, and the psychiatrist first, and said, you can go home now. Uh, you would have thought that he had performed a delicate piece of brain surgery, actually. And he gave me a time-worn lecture, uh, take care of yourself and get plenty of rest. Rest from what? I hadn't worked in months. You new guys that are trying to get sober around AA, watch out for that treacherous word, I'll tell you. Don't rest. So I go home, and my wife has great confidence in the things that have transpired in this hospital, and she thought that this would be the answer to everything. And I've got a disease that I can talk about in the bar room. And I stayed at home for nearly a month and was double-crossed by a bartender. He called my wife one day and he said these words to her, Mrs. Lee, you think your husband is sick. When you go to work in the morning, he gets up and comes down here. And he runs home at 11.30 and gets back in bed and lets you come home and prepare his meal for him and feed him over the side of the bed. And then when you go back to work, he gets up and comes down here, and we don't want him. <laughs> and this was quite a blow to her. Uh, and she became so perturbed that she called this uh, reflex detective down in uh, San Francisco. And uh, uh, I don't know what he told her, but that was when she left. Uh, and I say... I say that without any, any rancor in my heart because in the progression of our disease, I'm sure that we will cling to every crutch at hand. 
I think that some of us, the stumble bums like me, have to ultimately lose every crutch before we can honestly take a look at ourselves. And the absence of my wife was only the absence of another crutch. And some of my railroad buddies loaded me in a baggage car and sent me back to San Francisco. I didn't get the royal treatment this time. I got a cot in the baggage car. I still got a little wine in my handbag. And I go back to the hospital and I don't get the royal welcome there. Uh, this might explode a theory or two among you, but there's some psychiatrists who have a limit to their patients. And this chap wouldn't come to see me anymore. And the hospital was left hanging for this answer. They didn't know what was my trouble, not being willing to admit that they had a drunk in their hospital. And they sent out to the university and got a little Freudian fellow and brought him in, and he looked like one. Uh, he had a Van Dyke beard and thick glasses, and he kicked like that. And, uh, he didn't speak English, and I didn't speak what he spoke. And, uh, we didn't get along very good at all. I remember one of the questions, though, that he got through to me through the fog, and that was, do you wet the bed? That always bothered me. I know that's a result of drinking and not a cause of it. I had a month and a half of him, and finally the resident physician came and he said, uh, you're going to have to get out of here. I'd been going around cheering up some of the patients. Uh, they had been going home. And I had paraded this self-pity story all over the hospital about how my wife had left me and took everything. Hell, she earned it. She should have took it. And he said to me, where are your people? And I sat down in Texas, and his eyes lit up. He said, you should go down there by all means. <laughs> then I got the royal treatment. They never have arranged any transportation any quicker, I believe, but I was on the way to Texas very quickly. When I go back to my hometown, I... Uh, found a small-town psychiatrist down there, and I would name drop with him. And he'd give me goofballs with a popcorn sack full. He was a very lonely little fellow, and he loved to talk, and uh, I would listen to him. And uh, all I had to do was to go and sit and listen a while, and he'd give me some more pills, and I'd go home. And I got down completely. And my own mother <coughs> had me locked up for safekeeping. Two deputy sheriffs awoke me from a very peaceful slumber and said, Come on, go with us. Uh, 
And I had a terrifically hard time getting my shoelaces uh, laced up. And I said to one of these deputy sheriffs, will you help me with my shoelaces? And he said, no. <laughs> said, we've got plenty of time. And I found out that they did. <laughs> that seems to be the commodity with which they dispense. They've got a lot of time, and they'll give it to you at the slightest provocation. <laughs> About the fifth day or the fourth or the third, I don't know. I know I was focusing a little better. My eyes had come uncrossed. There came a fellow to my boudoir with the vertical Venetian blind uh, and called for me by name and walked up and introduced himself and he said these words, I have had a lot of trouble with my drinking. I drank uh, beyond control and he stood there through those jail bars and gave me what we've come to know as the AA pitch. And I didn't catch. But the thing that ruffled me so bad was that I couldn't arouse them. I like to see people react. And everybody I'd ever dealt with, I could knife them and cut them and make them react. And this guy didn't stir a bit. He was as serene as a man can be. And I asked him more than once, who sent you to see me? That's who I particularly wanted to hate. <laughs> and he went on without any force whatsoever and, and gave me the whole load. And when he saw that he wasn't getting too far along, he pulled a little pamphlet out of his pocket on the front of which reads, Slaves of Drink Find Peace of Mind. There's a little piece of literature that had been printed in the South, and he put his name and his address on the back of it, and he said, very calmly, if you need it, call us. And with that he went. And I heard this conversation secondhand, but he went back to my people, my mother in fact, and you know, uh, non-alcoholics are funny people, ain't they? They think you go jab the needle in and, and go forth and sin no more, see? And my mother says to him, well, what's the good word? Is he all right now? <laughs> Don't work that way. And he said there, no, your son's not ready for AA. I don't think. And she gave him a little more argument, and being the wise woman that she was, she said, well, if we let him out, he'll get drunk. And he said, why, yes, he'll get drunk. His condition demands that he get drunk. And he left again. My people are fairly substantial citizens in that area, and they arranged, that's a good word for it, they paid some money uh, and hired two deputy sheriffs 
to load me into a police car and carry me 200 miles to Houston, Texas, and sit with me in the depot until the train went west. I don't know whether they'd been reading Horace Greeley's admonition about go west to my boy or not, but they wanted to get the hell out of Texas with me. And in the program of AA, many times is mentioned the suffering that we do is practicing alcoholics and, and what we were like, what we did, and what we're like now, and, and I think that maybe the emphasis is greatly placed upon physical suffering. But to me, the suffering of humiliation and indignity that I brought down upon myself when I didn't have the answer to say why it was happening, don't tell me that's not suffering. And I shall remember to my dying day sitting in this depot, this immense station, with these two fuzzies on either side of me. Uh, in the summertime, their pistols were out, and I sat there in that station, humiliated, knowing that every eye was on me. And late that night, they escorted me out upon the train and helped me find a seat. It's not a quick way to make friends on a train. I didn't come back to California all in one long, non-stop hop. Uh, I got off in San Antonio, Texas, and filled up a bag with the only thing I know to fill a bag up with. And they carried me off of the train in a wheelchair in Los Angeles. They said, this car goes up and down the road. You can't live in it. Uh, uh, we got to use it again sometime. And... They wheeled me out, most of you are familiar with the scene, out onto the front foyer and dumped me very unceremoniously. And with all the jocular remarks that I might make, all the levity, I went through the next months of living hell. I drank, I think, as few people have, and we'll to tell the tale, and I ended up back in a flop in Sacramento. Those of you who remember Second Street in the days of yore know that it is not uncommon for one or two to die every night up there. And every time I opened one of these bags in this stinking place that I was in, that damn little pamphlet was on top. <laughs> I got to where I had a reluctance to open the bags, but every time I picked it up, slaves of drinks find peace of mind. And how I ever got out of there, I don't know. Yes, I do, too. That sign still hangs in our club, saying, but for the grace of God, that's how I got out. And I got up and got out of that stinking place and started on a 2,200-mile trek subconsciously to find this guy that has given me that stinking little piece of paper. 
and I made a bridge here and a jail there and on ad infinitum. And when I got home, I was drunk. How else does a drunk come home? And my people still believe in this iron treatment. They think that it'll cure this disease. And then an old uncle came to my rescue at the front door that day, and I'll never forget it as long as I live. And when I heard Bill say it, and we hear everybody say it, that we need all the friends we can get in AA. God bless the judge for his attitude towards us drunk so that we can come back and be a part of society. And this old uncle said some words, I suppose, that have been applicable to the treatment of the alcoholic down through the ages, maybe. He said, go into the back room and stay out of sight where you won't bother anybody. That's the way it's been. No family likes to admit they've got one, and my family sure as hell had one. <laughs> Hasn't that been the treatment? Up until the advent of our society, when we got it out in the open, and it's getting its neck further out all the time. People are becoming more aware of alcoholism as a disease now. I wonder whatever happened to the stigma on alcoholism, don't you? It used to be when I came in there, three or four of us would walk and get right even with the front door and look around and see that nobody was looking and then duck up there. Didn't want anybody to see it. It's not that way anymore. We have to worry now about keeping the social climbers out. I've read uh, many volumes on spiritual experiences, fantastic and otherwise. I was raised in a very religious family, but as I lay in that back room watching three half-pint bottles of apple wine and some goofballs that I had stuck to disappear, something came over me. I gave up, I guess, and I think that's the strongest thing that a man can do. And I woke up at three o'clock. I woke this old uncle up at three o'clock in the morning. I had to talk to somebody. And I went into his room, and I shall never forget that encounter as long as I live. I said to him, I think I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> and the kind old gentleman didn't argue with me a bit. Isn't it funny that we're always the last to know? And he said, now that you're an alcoholic, what do you intend to do about it? And we counseled there. I had another side affliction of this uh, alcoholism. I was what was known in the vernacular of the courtroom as a paper hanger. I wrote them by the stack and then forgot where I wrote them 
but the guys where I wrote them didn't forget where I wrote them. And when I came in there, it wasn't with any benevolent feeling about trying to save anybody's soul. I came in to get the monkey off of my back. I was running. The heat was on. The heat was on. And he suggested, go see this fellow that came to see you in jail. And immediately there sprang to my mind a rebuttal to the suggestion. Everything that I had ever contacted in my life before had been a one-shot affair. And here he was suggesting that a guy come and see me the second time, a fellow who had already been, who could well justify himself by saying, well, I want to see that stinker up there in jail. I know him. He's not ready to sober up. He's a nut. But I did it. And I think that if the efficacy of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous were expounded on for centuries. There would be nothing as impressionable as that guy making the second trip. How long do you work with a drunk? I don't know. He had plenty of time. And he comes out and gives me, in essence, the same pitch, same old pitch, same old story that's been handed down. And he took me to my first AA meeting. Why are they all upstairs? <laughs> took me to this very shabby-looking building that night and, and started me up. And these stairs are kind of cut on the bias a little bit, you know. I thought this fits. But, you know, I was willing to, to, for anything, I didn't know what they were going to do to me. I didn't know what kind of a crackpot outfit I was getting into, but I thought maybe I'd get some of the heat off. And I went with him. And I got up there, and I couldn't remember any of the words that were said in that AA meeting that night, if I were going to be shot. But I can remember feeling a communication that here are some people like me. And the sickening loneliness that a drunk experiences as long as he drinks left me that night, and thank God it has never returned. <laughs> Over to one side sat a fellow who looked familiar to me. He had on a big diamond ring and was puffing very serenely on a cigar. And he had one of these AA pictures that we get. Uh, the serenity, I believe they call it. Uh, and this guy sitting over there puffing on this cigar gently. And I said to myself, mind you, I've been gone 20 years. And I said, I believe I know that fellow. And after the meeting, I, I couldn't get my eyes off of him. And after the meeting, I discovered that I had soldiered with him some 20 years prior to that time. And the last time I had seen him, he was a blubbering idiot. In this army camp, uh, their treatment for alcoholism at that time happened to be uh, chaining a man to a post. 
And he had been chained to this post, and I remember it vividly. We would take him whiskey just to watch him perform. Uh, he became very adept with that chain like a monkey yet, and he was quite a comic. And, and, and that was the last time I see this guy, and 20 years later, and I walked into an AA club, here is Kitts, full of something that I see out here tonight. I don't know what it is, but he's puffing on the cigar. He's got the diamond ring and the AA punch. And I thought if it'll help him a little bit, it'll make a damn genius out of me. <laughs> and another fellow walked up to me that night that had pistols on. And he was a sheriff who had locked me up 12 years prior to that time for felonious drunk driving. And he put his arm around me and gave me this thing that we had in AA. He said, I love you, boy, and uh, you can stay sober just like I did. What is this thing that sets us apart from the rest of humanity? What is it? Is it too much love that we can't control? Something must be different about us or we wouldn't all be here. Could it be that God might have said, I'll give you too much? Let's see what you do with it. And this too much will make you feel deeper and hurt more and cry louder and laugh longer than anybody that you come close to. Could it be that? And could he have added as an afterthought, if you want to get out of this trap, you've got to come to me to get the key? Could it be like that? Why are we set apart? Why are we different from the man next to us? A question I can't answer. And I came in AA and went through all the fits and seizures of a new AA member. First, I became godlike. <laughs> Don't you know any AA members who are godlike? I didn't know who was giving this stuff away. I thought I was. I never will forget one day I was called to pick up a fellow. The restaurant owner called me and he said, I've got a drunk in my bar that says that an AA man ought to come get it. And I said, I'll be right there. And I got another buddy, and we went down to this restaurant to pick up this drunk, and he was drunk, and he was foxy. Uh, the restaurant owner had taken his jug, and he wanted to use us to get his jug from the restaurant owner so he could go on. But I didn't know that. I was so godlike. <laughs> and I had a nice new automobile, and I put him in the front seat, and... Between me and this other uh, AA member, and I started giving him the pitch, and I felt so good. And I thought this stuff I got, got to get him. And I drove slowly, and I looked over, and his eyes became watery, and I thought, I'm getting him. As I talked on with eloquence, he gently lay his head over on my shoulder, and I knew I had it. 
Did you ever hear of anybody throwing up silently? And then when I went through the next phase, I got smart in AA. I knew all the answers. And I worked with another fellow, bless his heart. Uh, about, oh, it's been nine years now, he called on Sunday morning, and that was in the days when I went every time I was called. Didn't point at somebody else's head your time. So I went this Sunday morning. My wife said, yes, you'll be there. And I go out and I get this guy. And he, he is scurvy. And he's bartering on DTs. And I borrowed a drink of whiskey, a big goblet full of it. And I poured it down him. Uh, knocked him out, really. And when he kind of came unshuffled from this drink, he was in an AA club. I believe any way you can get them there is good. <laughs> now he got he got sober and stayed sober for a few months, and then he got drunk. And I worked on him some more. And he got sober, and in a few months he got drunk. And he had an affliction I know none of you've ever had. He would go to far away places and call me Collect early, <laughs> early in the morning to break the news to me that he was drunk. And I worked and I worked and I thought sooner or later, sooner or later, this thing I've got is going to take effect. I can't miss this guy I've got him. And, and I thought, oh... And he became a sort of a side project with me. And, uh, oh, he was scurvy. Uh, I thought, uh, God, you've sure been watching him Sarah's too much, so let me have this one. I'll have it. <laughs> About four years, I worked with him four and a half years. About four years ago, he got on what was for him, I hope, his last drunk. And he ended up in one of our local motels. And he called another guy from our club who's not half as smart as I am. And he went out and talked to that bastard ten minutes, and he's been sober ever since. Yeah. I thought I would sit in the club and look at him and think you ought to be mine. And, and if I know anything about this love that God has given us for one another, I know that uh, I owe him a lot more than he owes me. He kept me sober for four and a half years. I don't know how to describe this gift of love. I don't. 
Uh, this loss of loneliness, I don't know how to describe happiness. Somebody said last night that it was a journey, not a destination. We used to have an old guy in our club who was a, uh, what do you call, an air conditioning engineer. Is there such a thing? He said he was. And I remember one night they were discussing the theory of air conditioning. I don't know anything about it. Uh, drunk don't know anything but overcoat time. And, uh, but he said this. Uh, one night, very profoundly, he wasn't uh, an, an, an eloquent man, but he said that there is no such thing as cold, that there is only an absence of heat. <laughs> well, well uh, that may be all right, I don't know. Uh, they sell a lot of machinery on that theory, I'm sure. But to me, the very essence of happiness is the absence of these things that used to happen to me and don't. I don't have to run anymore. I don't have to feel ashamed anymore, and I'm not humiliated and, and, and subjected to any indignities. And for that, I thank AA. I don't know how I could thank you, all of you, other than possibly the little anecdotes about the master teaching at Capernaum. As the story goes, most of you are familiar with it, I'm sure. Uh, there were four fellows in the scripture who were anonymous. Their names weren't mentioned. And they had a sick friend. And they felt that if they took their sick friend to hear this new philosophy of love, that it might help them. And these four fellows who were anonymous, their names weren't mentioned, took their sick friend to hear the master. And as the story goes, he was teaching in this small room, and it was so crowded that uh, they couldn't get in. And these four fellows who were anonymous were so determined that they let their... They effected an entrance through the roof and let their uh, sick friend down through the roof. And when the master saw this example of faith, these are his words verbatim. By their faith, he shall be healed. So it's not a matter of my worthiness or anything that I had to offer in my disease and alcoholism. I guess I got to attribute it to a guy who was anonymous. Thank you.